All right, if you want to make your way back toward your seat, we'll, we'll jump in. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 2 Kings. We're going to be in chapter 18 this morning. Uh, by way of just kind of introducing and getting started, if I talk about an epitaph, does, it, does everybody know what that is? Yeah, it's, that's been the mixed review every service. So an, an epitaph is, it's a description. Typically, it's actually an inscription that goes uh, on a tombstone or uh, a headstone. Of It's a description or some sort of phrase that kind of encapsulates a person's life that's then inscribed onto a tombstone in order to memorialize them. Uh, as an example, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his life to and for the work of advancing civil rights in America. And at the close of his I Have a Dream speech, he said the following words. When we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every city and every hamlet, from every state and every nation, we will be able to speed up the day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, great God Almighty, I am free at last. He was assassinated just about five years after giving that speech, and the words on his tombstone tell of a glorious truth, one that summarizes the life to which he gave his work, but one that also describes the spiritual reality that he was experiencing after his death. On his tombstone are the words, free at last, free at last, great God Almighty, I'm free at last, inscribed there as an epitaph for his life. I want to start this morning with a question, and it's one that is kind of a derivative of one of the questions that was on David Pallison's list of 12 questions we handed out a few weeks ago. And that question is this, what do you want that epitaph to read for your life? The summary statement of your life. When you think about you know, being on your deathbed, what would sum up your life? What do you want to be the thing that people hold on to? What we're going to do this morning is look at one of the kings of Judah, his name is Hezekiah. And in 2 Kings chapters 18, 19, 20, and 21 is the account of Hezekiah's time as king over Judah. But it begins with eight verses that give an epitaph, a summary description of Hezekiah's life. And so we're going to look at that while we start to delve into how do we pursue holiness as followers of Jesus Christ. And so before we start diving into King Hezekiah's life and his reign as king, let me just give the big picture reminder or set the stage for you if you're new with us this morning. This is where we are. We're in a year-long process of clarifying and communicating and explaining our vision and mission and why it is that we exist here at Liberty Christian Fellowship. And the reason is that we are building devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And so the logical question is, well, what does that mean? And so we've given, we've put some skin on what a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is, that they are a person who's gospel-centered, humbly unified, mission-driven, pursuing holiness, and disciple-making. We're walking through the book of Romans over the course of the year in order to really dive down into what does it mean to be gospel-centered. And So if you've been with us, you've heard us unpacking that. We're like six chapters of the way through Romans, and we'll, in a couple of weeks, we'll pick back up in chapter 7. If you haven't been here, uh, let me just offer an illustration for what it is when we talk about being gospel-centered. Think about your cell phone, particularly if you have a smartphone. You can go and get apps on that phone and you know, kind of make it however you want it to be. 
oftentimes, especially within American kind of cultural Christianity, we picture our spiritual life, if you will, our Christianity as an app on the phone. That it's something that at one point I put my faith in Jesus, I came forward, I, you know, I did the thing at the camp or whatever, and now I've added Christian onto my cell phone. And once a week, I click into that app and I do whatever I'm supposed to do, typically on a Sunday morning inside that app. And then when I leave the church, I close the app and I move on with my life. Being gospel-centered is understanding that when you became a Christian, you received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, you didn't get an app that you put on your phone, you got an entirely new operating system. And now everything functions differently. You can add things on top of that, like your family, your career, your hobbies, whatever the case might be, but they all are run by and through the gospel. To be gospel-centered is to understand that the gospel is your operating system, not an app that you've added into your life. That's kind of where we are in the middle of Romans. Matt Perman is an author. He says it this way. Christ should not be just one component among many in our lives. He ought to be the center from which everything else flows because he is Lord of all. A couple of months ago, we spent three weeks talking through the what, why, and how of being mission-driven. What does it look like? Why would we and how do we live lives that are driven by the mission of God to share the gospel with all the people to the ends of the earth? And now we're on week three of four talking about the what, why, how, and how of pursuing holiness. So two weeks ago, we talked about what that means, that pursuing holiness is beholding and becoming the image of Jesus Christ. Jenny Allen is an author and the founder of the If Gathering. She describes holiness this way. Holiness was never meant to be a shaming reminder of what we quote unquote should be doing, but rather a profound privilege of becoming more and more like the image of Christ. That's what pursuing holiness is. And last week, Kurt took us through why. And the why is because of the gospel. Because God in Christ has perfectly demonstrated that his grace, his mercy, his love, and his power are greater than that of sin. And that brings us to Hezekiah and the question of how. How do we actually do this? And so the goal today is to begin a process of unpacking the practical side of how a follower of Jesus pursues holiness in their own life. Uh, my initial plan when I arrived here this morning was to walk through 2 Kings 18 and 19 and just kind of pack in 10 of these practical tips. I made it through three in first service. So we're only going to do three of them today and we'll pick up the next seven next week. But all of this is going to be kind of held within the parameters of this statement. That only God can definitively provide what sin deceitfully promises. And with that understanding, we pursue holiness. How do we do that? Well, let's look at King Hezekiah's life. So I'm going to read the first eight verses of 2 Kings chapter 18. Here's the summary statement, the epitaph of his life. In the third year of Israel's King Hoshea, son of Elah, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, became king of Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abai, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. He removed the high places, shattered the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses made, for until then the Israelites were burning incense to it. It was called Nehesheton. Hezekiah relied on the Lord God of Israel. Not one of the kings of Judah was like him, either before him or after him. He remained faithful to the Lord and did not turn from following him, but kept the commands the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him, 
And wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its borders from watchtower to fortified city. There's the summary of Hezekiah's life and reign as king. That's the epitaph, the thing that would encapsulate who he was and what he did. And as followers of Christ take the historical particulars out of there, that would be a great summary for us to strive for. Listen to some of the phrases that were used to describe him. He did what was right in the Lord's sight. He relied upon the Lord. He remained faithful to the Lord. He did not turn from following him, but kept the commandments the Lord had commanded Moses. It ends with this in verse 12, or I'm sorry, in verse 7, that the Lord was with him wherever, and wherever he went, he prospered. There's only one other figure in the Old Testament who gets that description, that the Lord was with him, and wherever he went, he prospered, and that's David. If you are going to live a life and be compared to one Old Testament figure, David is a good one to be lumped in with. And that's where Hezekiah ends up. There are important things to keep in mind, though, as we think about those eight verses. One thing to bear in mind is that this is a summary of Hezekiah's life. It's not a statement of the moment-by-moment, every-single-day realities in Hezekiah's life. Our desires, devoted followers of Jesus Christ, should be for the summary of our lives to be similar to the summary of Hezekiah's. This does not mean that we will have complete victory over sin at all times in every moment from the day we become a Christian until the day we go home to be with the Lord. That's not the case. In fact, we're going to see that in Hezekiah's life this morning, later in chapter 18. It's a summary It's a broad view, zoomed out, of what Hezekiah's life was like. And as followers of Jesus, we should want the same thing. Not that we would chase down some unattainable and unrealistic idea of perfectionism within our pursuing holiness, but that at the end of our lives, someone would be able to step back and say, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. They obeyed the commands of Jesus. They bared the image of Christ in a broken world. In the midst of that, we will have moments of stumbling, moments of temptation. We'll have moments where we fall to sin. But we need to remember that pursuing holiness is not always smooth. It's growth. It's not always this straight line that goes from more sinful to less sinful to not sinful. It's up and down. It's got switchbacks. It winds back and forth. There are peaks and valleys and times where it feels like we're growing and times where it feels like we're stagnant. We'll see that in Hezekiah's life. There's one other thing I think it's really important to point out before we move on. And that's that when we read a statement like verse 7, the Lord was with him and wherever he went, he prospered. And it comes right on the heels of verse 6, that he remained faithful to the Lord and did not turn from following him, but kept the commands the Lord had commanded Moses. We need to not allow ourselves to buy into a false set of theology that would tell us that if we are obedient, we will prosper more as if God operates on some sort of one-for-one sort of blessing and curse kind of system where if you're obedient one time, I'll give you one blessing. If you disobey one time, I will give you one curse or something. There's a strain of false theology within the prosperity gospel that says that that's the way things work. But if you look at the whole of the Bible, especially if you dive into Psalms and Proverbs, you will see David and Solomon crying out to the Lord because of the injustice of the fact that the wicked often prosper while the righteous or the faithful are struggling in life. They cry out in anger because the righteous are are stumbling while it appears that the wicked are living these lives that are wealthy and prosperous and easy. 
And so we don't need to buy the lie that as I'm more obedient and as I'm molded into the image of Christ, everything is just always going to go my way. That's not true. Again, it's a summary statement, zoomed out, that this is what the life of Hezekiah looked like. It's not measured by one mistake. It's not measured by one instance of stumbling. It's measured by a reliance upon the Lord. He relied upon the Lord. Your your translation might say he trusted in the Lord. Let's kind of dive beneath the surface. Here's practical tip number one. As we behold and become the image of Christ, as we pursue holiness, we need to be relentless with our sin. We need to be relentless about anything that would distract us from beholding Christ. If the act of pursuing holiness is the act of beholding and becoming the image of Jesus, then we need to be absolutely ruthless with whatever would cause us to behold something else. Look at the words that are used to describe what Hezekiah did. Look at verse 4. He removed the high places. He shattered the sacred pillars. He cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made. He embarks on this process at some point in his reign of chasing out everything that might cause him or his people to look to something other than the greatness and the glory of Yahweh, the the Lord of God. The first step in our pursuit of holiness is getting that kind of serious where we would come before the Lord, kind of lay ourselves bare and say, I am going to chase out, to destroy, to cut down, to shatter everything within me that would cause me to look at something other than the gospel. Everything that would tempt me to think that there's something that could be provided by sin that God has not already provided for me in Jesus Christ or that God will not provide for me eternally when I join with him in heaven. And we need to be relentless about that. Another note. Note that this even includes what at one time was a good religious thing. At the end of verse 4, it says that he broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. That's an allusion back to a story in Numbers. And this bronze serpent on this scepter had been held out for years at this point, from Moses all the way to Hezekiah, and it had become an object of worship rather than an object that pointed them to the Lord who they were to worship. And they're burning incense to it. They're making offerings to it. And so Hezekiah says, yes, this one, at one time this was a great thing. The Lord delivered us from illness. He delivered us from pain and death through this thing, but it's become a problem, and we need to break it into pieces. And you might be saying to yourself right now, uh, Tim, I don't see any bronze serpents up there, so I don't know what kind of good religious thing you're talking about. You might be here this morning because you think that it is church attendance that's going to ultimately save you. That's a good religious thing that you've made a sinful thing that you need to break into pieces. Your church attendance is not going to save you. Your church attendance is a great thing but it is not the thing. And if you set it up onto this pedestal where that becomes the thing that you worship, where that's the thing that's ultimately going to save you, that's sinning. It's a sinful, incorrect view of what church is supposed to be. There is nothing that Satan would love more than a whole bunch of people worldwide who go to church because that's what they think is going to save them ultimately to end up in hell. 
There's nothing he would love more than that. You're saved by one thing and one thing alone. The grace of God received by faith in Jesus Christ. We behold that and we get rid of everything else that we think promises something that our heart desires and yet cannot deliver. And so if that's legalism, if it's thoughts of church attendance, if it's this belief that if I serve more within the church, then I'll definitely be saved, you need to break that into pieces so that you can see the truth of the gospel underneath it. Be relentless. There's something else that Hezekiah is doing at this same time, though. It actually begins before he starts this process. And so if you've got a Bible on your phone or you can flip kind of quickly to 2 Chronicles, you're in 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles is next, 2 Chronicles is after that. Verse, or chapter 29 and 30 give the chronicler's account of Hezekiah's reign. Because he's doing something at the same time, or he began a process before he started chasing out all of these idolatrous, false gods, sinful things. And the chronicler focuses on that action rather than the author of Kings, who focuses on the removing of those high places. And it's that Hezekiah is intentional. That's the second practical piece. We're relentless with that which causes us to look to something other than Christ. We're intentional with replacing those things with the beauty and the glory and the greatness of who God is. Let me just read uh, some of the high points of this in chapters 29 and 30 of 2 Chronicles. Look at verse 3. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the Lord's temple and repaired them. First thing, you know, first hundred days of someone's time as a leader. The first thing he does is he says, that's where we're supposed to be going, to behold the glory of the Lord, to worship God. And it's been shut up and it has been defiled and we are going to open the doors and we are going back inside. We're going to repair that. He's intentional about it. Jump down to verse 15. You'll see in verses 12, 13, and 14 that there are lists of names. And I would have started reading in verse 12 if I could pronounce even half of those. But I can't. So I'll let you try to say them in your mind. And then I'll read verse 15. They, all those people, gathered their brothers together, consecrated themselves, and went according to the king's king's command by the words of the Lord to cleanse the Lord's temple. He brings the priests in. And he says, if we're going to re-engage in worship here, we need to have the right people in place and you need to do the work of cleansing this temple from what has defiled it over the years. Look down to verses 20 and 21. King Hezekiah got up early, gathered the city officials and went to the Lord's temple. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs and seven male goats as a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary and for Judah. Then he told the descendants of Aaron, the priests, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. He re-engages the people in regular worship. And then if you'll look at the heading on the top of chapter 30, mine says celebration of the Passover. Yours might say some variation of that. He reinstitutes the Passover celebration, which is really important because it's the celebration and the remembering of the Lord redeeming the Israelite people from slavery in Egypt, saving them. He's intentional. And in the midst of being intentional about beholding the glory of who God is and the greatness of who he is, he starts to see all the other sinful stuff for what it is, hollow and shallow and broken, and he says, we're going to tear that stuff down. 
And so there's this cyclical process. As you're intentional about beholding who God is, you become very aware of the sin that exists in your life, and then you need to be relentless with it. And as you're relentless with it, you're able to see the glory of who God is because he's providing what sin promised but is lying about. And it becomes this cycle that works itself in your life. The other truth here is that unless you replace the sinful thing with the beholding of Christ in its spot, you will find something else false to worship and to serve. Martin Luther famously said that the human heart is an idol factory. You were made to worship. And so if in your life currently, you're kind of bowing down and worshiping something that's false, you're caving in to a particular sin and lifting that thing up as the ultimate thing in your life, and then you do the relentless act of removing that thing from your life, but you don't be intentional about replacing it with the gospel, your heart will just crank out something else for you to latch on to and for you to make the ultimate thing in your life. We have to be relentless and we have to be intentional. It's a great start and a great summary of Hezekiah's life, but then something goes wrong in there. Just like any other follower of the Lord, any person who devotes themselves to following the Lord, there are moments of lapse. And that's where the author of 2 Kings turns next. So if you'll jump back to 2 Kings 18... What's going to happen in Hezekiah's life is that he's going to remove from the, or he's going to move from the outright destroying of these idols and sins, and then he's going to cave to a type of sin that's a little bit different. Sometimes our sin is obvious. It's right there on the surface. It's available for all to see. There's a command in Scripture. There's the thing that I'm doing, and you say, these don't line up, and I need to be relentless about that. Other times, the issue is a little bit below the surface. It's something more insidious. It exists in your heart. It operates at the desire level or the attitude level, at the thought level. And we need to be just as relentless with those things. Let me give you a concrete example. Maybe the thing that exists in our lives and in our society that facilitates the most sin, that thing is probably your cell phone. I'll describe. Your cell phone leads you to outright obvious sin. It can all the time. The phone itself is morally neutral. We turn it into something that either facilitates our righteousness or becomes an outlet for our brokenness. It could be that you use your smartphone's internet capability to look at sexually explicit images and that becomes an addiction for you. It could be that thanks to the apps and whatnot that are on your phone, you find it very hard or you have the inability to control your tongue in the comments of a Facebook post. And so there you are out there in the public sphere just just tongue lashing people because the self-control is difficult and your phone makes it easy to tap into that. It could be, young people, that you use your phone to lie to your parents about what you're doing, when you're doing it, where you're doing it, why you're doing it. Married people, our smartphones have made it easier than ever to both create and hide emotional intimacy with someone outside of your spouse. Single people, you and I both know that your cell phone is an absolute disaster when it comes to cultivating, fostering, and maintaining appropriate Christ-honoring relationships. It could be that you're using your cell phone 
subconsciously, you don't even know what's happening, but because of the presence of that phone in your life, you're ignoring your physical, actual neighbors so that you can engage with cyber neighbors, if you will. And so here are these people that are around you when you're out in public that you should be engaging with and having life with and interacting with, and you're so consumed in your phone that your relationships are totally void because you think they all exist on the interweb. Our phone can lead us to concrete sin. And we need to be relentless about those things. I'll paraphrase Matthew chapter 5 and put it into kind of updated language by saying this. It would be better for you to go into heaven not having the internet in the palm of your hand than to go into hell with Snapchat open. Your phone can lead you just to outright sin. But there could be less obvious ways that your phone leads you into sin as well. It could be that thanks to all of those apps on your phone and the availability of social media to connect with people and to see the highlight reel from people's lives, that you have a hard time with comparison. And that comparison with the glossed over images that people place out there about their lives leads you to bitterness or to jealousy or to coveting. And the ability to just tap into Instagram or to tap into Facebook is something that you can't get beyond. And so you live in this constant state of of jealous, bitter coveting over the outward projection of the people's lives that you interact with on social media. It could be that you're on the other side of that. And what exists within you is this urge to cultivate the right appearance for people to see. And so you take what might be you know, difficult, hard life experiences and you pick the one positive thing and you constantly project the one positive thing out there so that no one even knows what your life is actually like. And there's this total lack of vulnerability and transparency and authenticity and you don't have that in face-to-face relationships and now you've got a way to not have to have that in your online relationships either. It could be that you've got an unhealthy need for or addiction to the affirmation that we get through social media from the likes or the retweets or the shares or the comments. That's something deeper. It's below the surface. And the approach to both of those types of sin is the same. We have to be relentless with it. We need to be intentional. Those two things can exist outside the realm of our cell phones. I thought it was an easy way to direct our attention to how these two different things operate before seeing what happens to Hezekiah here. If you want more, if you're kind of interested in the whole phone thing now, there's an amazing book called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You that I cannot recommend highly enough for every person who has a smartphone. It is an amazing book amazing book written from a Christian perspective, a biblical perspective about what your cell phone does in your life. Let me jump back into Hezekiah here. He's done this unbelievable work of restoring the temple. He's done this unbelievable work of ridding uh, Judah from all of the false uh, religion and idol worship that exists there. And then he gives in to this fear. Remember, his life was summarized as one that relied upon the Lord. And yet what happens here is that he falls into a lack of trust. I'll start reading in verse 13, 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Assyria's king Sennacherib attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So King Hezekiah of Judah sent word to the king of Assyria at Lachish, I have done wrong, withdraw from me. Whatever you demand from me, I will pay. 
The king of Assyria demanded 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold from King Hezekiah of Judah. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver found in the Lord's temple and in the treasuries of the king's palace. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the Lord's sanctuary and from the doorposts he had overlaid and he gave it to the king of Assyria. Then the king of Assyria sent the field marshal, the chief of staff, and his royal spokesperson, along with a massive army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They advanced and came to Jerusalem, and they took their position by the aqueduct of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. They called for the king, but Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the court historian, came out to them. Something beneath the surface takes over in Hezekiah's heart. There's a fear that this army and this king and this nation who is brutal is too great, it's too large. I can't trust the Lord to provide us here. I can't rely upon him, and so I'll do something different. I'll pay. I'll offer money to that king to go somewhere else. Let me tell a story. My hatred of spiders is well documented. I think they're trying to kill me. By extension, I think they're trying to kill you as well. Some people uh, in the world are fearful that artificial intelligence, AI, is going to be the thing that somehow like, overruns humanity. I think spiders have been plotting to do that for you know, centuries. They're shifty and they're creepy and they can move in all directions at equal speed and they've got tons of eyes and I don't know, I just don't really like them. And so our old house had a brown recluse issue. They were everywhere. They were in the basement. They were in our living room. They were in our bedroom. Uh, there were multiple times where you would go to get in bed and you'd pull the covers back and one would scurry out from underneath the comforter. Serious issue. So I'm living in that. I'm attempting to live in that. And I went to bed one night, and it's like 2 a.m. And I wake up because Melody has sat bolt upright in the bed next to me. And then as close to a scream as I've ever heard her give, she said, there's a bug on your face. I didn't ask for details. I didn't need to know if it was like a run-of-the-mill sort of insect or if it was an arachnid, right? I went into full-on panic. I am thrashing around in the bed. I'm swatting my face. I've knocked both pillows off of the bed. I've ripped the covers back to try to figure out where it went. And in the middle, I've, I've turned a light on. In the middle of my panic, I've missed it. But Melody has calmly laid down and gone straight back to sleep. I am freaking out about this. I'm, I'm literally uh, over, kind of over the top of her like, hey, where did it go? The bug. I need to know what happened here. Sound asleep. I didn't find out until the morning, you know, six hours later that she was having a dream. And that in this like hyper real sort of dream, there was a mutant bug known as a black widow stick that had crawled onto my face. And it was so real that Melody sat up and out of you know, wanting to protect me, yelled, there's a bug on your face. And as I'm thrashing around, trying to find what I think is a brown recluse that's trying to kill me, she realized it was a dream and just went back to sleep. She thought, oh, I guess I was dreaming. And she, in that moment, the next morning, I was done with that old house. 
we are doing whatever we need to do. I will pay whatever we need to pay to get rid of the spiders, and then we are selling this house, and we're going to some other place. And someone's going to come up to me after the service and say, you know, your new house probably has brown recluse spiders too. To which I will say, I haven't seen one, and I'm living in blissful ignorance. I tell that story to say this. Pick the kind of pest that you're afraid of that you think is out to kill you. Insert, you know, snakes, mice, bats, some other insect. And I can almost guarantee for every single person in this room that we would be much more swift about dealing with the presence of that pest in our house than we are with the festering sin that exists in our hearts. That if someone came to you and said, I see this thing inside of you, you would be much more slow to deal with that than if someone came to you and said, there are four pythons in your basement. Whereas we would call the exterminator or whoever we would need to in order to get serious about those pests, we coddle our sin. Look at what Hezekiah did here. There's the king of the Assyrian army. He's attacked all the fortified cities of Judah. He's captured them. That's a brief summary there, but the history books tell us that 46 cities in Judah fell to the king of Assyria. 200,000 people were taken captive. The king of Assyria arrives at Jerusalem, and Hezekiah is so fearful, he's so afraid of it, that his first instinct is not to turn and look at the power and the might and the greatness and the glory of Yahweh, the Lord, but instead to say, I will pay you to go away, whatever you want. Sennacherib didn't ask for money. He didn't say, here are the things you've done wrong, and here are the reasons why we're here. Hezekiah just said, Look, I've done wrong. I will pay you to go away. And so there he is, stripping the gold off the doorposts in the temple that he has already done the work to refurbish. There he is emptying the treasury in the palace and emptying the treasury in the temple in order to pay this guy to go away. Assyrians were killers. That's what they did. They were brutal to the places that they overtook. Look at what happens. He gives all the money away. The king says, give me 11 tons of silver, one ton of gold. If we were to put that into today's standards, it's $1.2 million of silver, $3.4 million of gold. And Hezekiah says, here it is. I'll take it from wherever I have to. We'll have doors without doorposts now so that you will go away. And then look at verse 17. Then the king of Assyria sent the field marshal, the chief of staff, and his royal spokesman, along with a massive army. He said, hey, thanks for the money. We're still coming to destroy you. You do not coddle a killer. That's practical number three. You wouldn't coddle the spiders in your house. You wouldn't coddle the snakes that are in your house. You do not coddle the killer that is sin inside of your heart. Here's what I didn't do the next morning when I woke up with the spiders. Hey, I'm going to rally up all the brown recluse, right? Come on, guys, come on. Stay in the basement. Just, you can be here. I'll put food in the basement. What do you like to eat? What kind of bug do you? I'll put it down there if you will just stay there. You would never do that. And yet we do that with our sin all the time. 
We start to bargain with it. We act as though it's going to hurt sin's feelings if we deal with it relentlessly and intentionally and ruthlessly. We coddle it. And then, exactly like Kurt said last week, we arrive in this place where we never thought we'd go because of our sin, and all of a sudden it's costing us more than we ever could have imagined. You've coddled your sin for so long that all of a sudden it's cost you your family or it's cost you some relationships. It's costing your career. Why? Because you made bargains with it. You tried to play nice with it, but it's gonna do what it's gonna do, which is destroy you. The king of Assyria comes back and says, hey, we're a little bit richer now and I'm still sending the army. Thank you for the money. That's who he was. He was a killer. And so he did what he was gonna do, kill. That's what sin is. It is a killer. It wants to destroy you. And if you coddle it, no matter how you coddle it, it will destroy. You do not coddle a killer. You have to be ruthless with your sin because if you aren't, it will be ruthless with you. We only made it through three. There are seven more that we will attempt to do next week. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I want to to end with this. Hezekiah's story takes a different turn, and um, that's where we'll go next week, the end of chapter 18 and into chapter 19. At one point in chapter 18, as all of this is happening, Hezekiah describes it as a day of distress. He goes to this prophet, Isaiah, He says, we are in a day of distress. Last week when Kurt was walking us through the why of pursuing holiness, he talked about this day of good news. We find ourselves ensnared by sin and we look around and we see the consequences and we understand exactly what it's doing to us. We're tempted to think this is a day of distress. I want to tell you this morning that no matter what might be happening in your life, you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you know that one day there was a day of good news. When you received the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and the consequences eternally of your sin were paid once and for all and you knew that you had union with Christ and that you were gonna spend eternity with the Lord in heaven, that was a day of good news. But it's also true that you live in a day of good news every single day as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because the very power that raised Christ from the dead, the very power that gave Christ power over the sin or over sin and death is available to you to be able to walk through the sin that exists in your life. You do not do it alone. You do it in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans chapter six that the death that Christ died, he died once and for all. And now he no longer, or he cannot die again, but now he, the life he lives, he lives to God and that we are to consider ourselves the same, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a day of good news. Life-altering, life-transforming, life-long, life-giving day of good news. Why do you pursue holiness? Because that's where you live. In Christ Jesus, who's defeated the power of sin. How do you pursue holiness? Well, first and foremost, you need to get relentless with the sin that exists in your life. You need to be intentional about playing Uh, replacing it with the beauty of the gospel and you do not coddle a killer because it will do what it does, which is kill. Beholding and becoming the image of Christ, motivated by the gospel, 
That's what pursuing holiness is. And we do it so that at the end of all things, when our life is summarized, someone might look at you and say, I saw a beautiful picture of the gospel because that person relied upon the Lord, looked to the beauty of the Lord, and looked a lot like Jesus. That's what we want as followers of Christ. And it's empowered by the Holy Spirit within you. Let's close our service uh, singing together about that gospel. Stand up and let's sing.